0: Take your Bible with me this morning, if you haven't already, and open to the Gospel of Mark chapter 16. The Gospel of Mark chapter 16, I want us to read verses 15 and 16, and then I want to pray as we continue in this message or this service this morning. The Gospel of Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Let's pray together. Father, I pray today that you will help me to deliver this message. I, In the earlier service, poured out my heart. Uh, I, I pray that they saw my passion for the cause of world missions. Lord, I pray today this service that They will see my heart, and they will see my passion for world missions. Lord, there's probably others that can say it better than me. I'm doing my best. I'm giving my best, and I pray, Lord, that as weak as that may be, I pray, Lord, that your strength will be seen and demonstrated today and that we'll have people's hearts that will be touched. Lord, we might even have some that will begin to make themselves available to you and say, Lord, send me. Lord, send me. So Lord, help us now as we talk about your word. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm talking to you today about the Great Commission. Uh, The Great Commission is the last commandment that Jesus left to his disciples. And it is our first responsibility. In other words, what he told the disciples was to be handed down and passed down from one generation to the next. And today we're looking at the Great Commission from the Gospel of Mark. But before we break apart those two verses that we just talked about a few moments ago, or I just read to you a few moments ago, I want to take care of some technicalities. I realize that a lot of times preachers don't do this, and consequently people don't know how they come to their position. They don't understand what their reasoning is as to why something is done a certain way. And there are four technicalities that you have to deal with when you come to Mark chapter 16. The first has to do with what we'll call manuscript evidence. Probably if you're carrying a modern language translation, English Standard Version or New American Standard Version or the New International Version, when you get to verse 9 of Mark chapter 16 through verse 20, it's probably bracketed off. And if it's not bracketed off, there is an asterisk there that tells you that there's a footnote that you need to look. And what that footnote says is this. These verses are not in the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament. Uh, These verses are not in the oldest manuscripts. And so consequently, they're bracketed off. They have an asterisk by it. just, Just to tell you that they're not sure that these should have been included. Now, I will tell you that I believe they should have been included. And I'll tell you why, at least three reasons why. It is true that they are not in the oldest two manuscripts, the Sinaiticus Sinaiticus and and, uh, the others. They're just not in those older manuscripts. I was going to say them both to you, and I can't get them out. (laughs) Uh, But they're not in those two manuscripts. But it's interesting that they're in the majority of manuscripts. While it's not in those older manuscripts, it it, it is in the larger manuscripts the broader number of manuscripts, the the majority of manuscripts. Um, The second thing is that in those older manuscripts, um, at the end of verse 8, there is is an area, a blank area. It looks as if uh, the scribes, they didn't have copy machines, they didn't have printing presses. The scribes would copy word for word, letter for letter, uh, you know from one manuscript to another, it looks as if in those older manuscripts, as if they were intending to add something else, either part of verses uh, nine to twenty, or all of verses nine to twenty, and that, that there 's a blank there, an open space where it could have been added. But I think even more convincing t- to me is that Justin Martyr, uh, Tatian, uh, Irenaeus, uh, some of these early church fathers that were within about a hundred years of the writing of the gospels. Quoted from these verses of Scripture. And therefore, I, I think it's legitimate to say that these verses should be in our Bibles. They should be a part of what we study and what we learn, uh, and that we, we find out what they have to say. So that's, that's the first technical difficulty you have to deal with, what's called the manuscript controversy. Uh, that, that's only on a very few places in the Scriptures, this being one of them, that you even have a question uh, like that. The second question or the technicality that has to be dealt with are what, what are the signs that follow those who believe. If you'll notice in verse 17, a verse we didn't read, it says, And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them, uh, they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, a lot of people, some people, especially in Appalachia, uh, take that t- particular text of Scripture about taking up serpents. They take it literally. They, they have snake handling services and poison drinking services. Now, I, w- I just want to be honest with you and tell you that if you bring a snake in this building, you'll have to get a new preacher. <laughs> and if there's not a door to get out, I'll make a door. Because in my estimation, the only good snake is a dead snake. You know what I'm saying? I realize that there's some that have a purpose. I'd just rather them have a purpose somewhere else than around where I am. I don't think that this scripture is at all saying that we should be handling serpents. That's not a test of our faith. That's a temptation to God. You're tempting God when you do that. Then what are these signs here? Well, these signs, uh, he says, uh, you'll cast out demons. Well, the, the, the disciples have already been doing that, and they're going to continue to do that uh, on the day of Pentecost and beyond. It says they'll speak with new tongues. They did that on the day of Pentecost. They spoke in intelligible languages that were known by the people who gathered that day in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Uh, taking up serpents. We, we find an illustration of what may be mean, what may be meant here in... Um, Acts chapter 28. The apostle Paul is being transported to Rome and they have a shipwreck. They end up stranded on the island of Malta. It says the natives were there and Paul is gathering sticks and he reaches into some of these sticks and when he does, a snake latches hold of him and he pulls his hand up. I guess he must have held it up so they could see the snake holding on, and he shook off the snake. Well, the natives were watching this, and they said, he's going to swell up or he's going to die, but he didn't. He didn't. God protected him. God shielded him, and that very well may be what was being meant when he says they'll be able to take up serpents. We have no illustration of them drinking anything deadly, but you could imagine in first century society, uh, people hating Christians. And what they may have done in serving them something that could potentially be deadly. Or laying hands on the sick. Well, they did that before when, in the ministry of Jesus. They'll do that afterwards. And so these are just simply signs. It's a little bit, little bit like what Jesus said in Matthew 28. And lo, I am with you always. I think what he's saying here in these signs is that I'm going to be with you and I'm going to protect you, and nobody can harm you until I allow it. Till I'm ready for you to come home, nobody can harm you. You don't have to go handle snakes, you don't have to intentionally drink something that's poisonous. Uh, when you need to speak a language, that you do not know, I will give you that ability if that's what I desire for you to do. If it is to cast out a demon, if it is to bring healing, then my power using you will accomplish that. And the evidence of that is down in verse 20 of chapter 16. At the end of verse 20 it says, And confirming the word through the accompanying signs. In other words, how would people know that these Christians were speaking the truth about Jesus? God gave them certain signs, accompanying signs, that confirmed their word. You understand what I'm saying? How do we confirm today whether the message is of God or not? We compare it to the written scriptures. We compare it to what God says and what's written down for us. We don't need the confirming signs. don't, Don't misunderstand me. God can do anything he wants to do. And God can still do the miraculous when He wants to do the miraculous. I don't in any way question that. But most often, if we're going to confirm the message that's being delivered, we compare it to Scripture. So we have the manuscript controversy. Uh, We have the the signs that follow those who believe. If you go to a church that handles snakes, you might want to reconsider where you are. The third controversy that you have to deal with or, or difficulty here is, is baptism necessary to salvation? You notice in verse 16, he says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. And so there are those who say, Well, believing on Christ is not enough. You've got to be baptized as well as believing in order to be saved. But that's a total misreading of that verse. As a matter of fact, if you look at the entirety of Scripture, what is the one condition of salvation? It is always faith. It is always faith. In the first century, it was assumed, it was automatically assumed when you put your faith in Jesus, you were going to follow the Lord and believers baptism. That was just a given fact. It was just a given fact. You get saved, you get baptized. It was just a means of declaring your faith in the Lord Jesus. And he's just connecting these two because when somebody believes they're automatically baptized. It's not like it is today, where you got to give them a period of time to get all their family together and you know collect a whole bunch of people to come watch and get pictures. It wasn't like that. And, and the confirming of that is the second part of verse sixteen. It says, "But he who does not believe will be condemned." It doesn't say anything about baptism. It says, "If you don't believe, you're condemned." Not if you don't believe and aren't baptized. Just if you don't believe, you aren't condemned. So that when he said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, this believing that saves us in baptizing them was the profession of their faith in the Lord Jesus. So you got the manuscript controversy. You got the signs that followed those who believe. You got whether baptism is necessary to be saved or not. There's one more of these technicalities, and that is the difference between Matthew's commission and Mark's commission. Each of the Gospels has a little t- telling of the Great Commission to it. Even Acts chapter 1 has a little telling of the Great Commission. But the two that, that are most contrasted are Matthew's telling of the Great Commission and Mark's telling of the Great Commission. Now look, don't, don't let your eyes glass over yet. We're, we're going to get really practical here in a minute. In, in the Gospel of Matthew, this is how it, how it reads. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, now he's saying, go and make disciples. And here he's saying, go and preach the gospel. And they seem to be somewhat different, but they're not really different. They're just opposite sides of the same, of the same thing. In in the Gospel of Mark chapter 16, he's talking about the evangelism aspect of the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28, he's talking about the discipleship aspect of the Great Commission. They're not two separate things. They're one thing, opposite sides of the same thing. Uh, you, You can't become a disciple of Jesus if you don't first believe on Christ. And when you believe on Christ, you have to get up every day and decide, I'm going to follow Jesus today. You don't, you don't decide every day to be saved. You, you come and put your faith in Jesus once for all, but you, then you have to get up every single day. And he says, you're supposed to make disciples. You're supposed to help people follow Jesus every single day of their lives. And so they're not two different things. They're not in conflict with one another. They're, they complement each other. They're opposite sides of the same thing. One focused on the evangelism aspect the other focused on the discipleship, the discipleship aspect. And so we have the man, manuscript controversy. We have the signs that follow those that believe. We have whether baptism is necessary to salvation or not. And then we have these two different commissions that are really the same, just telling the opposite sides of the same thing. And so when you come now back to chapter 16 and verse 15, and you read it again, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized, not because baptism is necessary to salvation, will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. You have Mark's telling of the Great Commission. And I want us to take a few minutes now, and I want us to look at Mark's telling of the Great Commission. And if you're taking notes, you want to write down these five words. They all begin with the letter D. And they'll help you to remember what, what Mark is saying here. First, we'll talk about the directive. The directive. He begins in this passage and he says, go. That's the directive. Something you might find interesting is that the word go is a verb, obviously, but it's, it's not an imperative. The imperative in the verse is the word preach. That's the imperative. That's the command. Preach. But because go is connected to preach as a participle, go takes on the form of a command so that you can, in essence, say he is saying go. He's not asking people if they want to go. He's not suggesting to them it's a good idea. Because it's connected to the word preach, he's saying go. I, I'm telling you that you have to go. Now, the importance of that is this. The, the, the message of the gospel cannot be spread if we do not what? Go. You cannot preach if you don't go. You can't tell your neighbors across the street if you don't go and tell them. We we can't send missionaries around the world if there aren't men and women that are willing to go. We have to go. The same thing is said in, in Matthew's Gospel when he gave the Great Commission. He said, go, therefore, and make disciples. You have to go. That means that we have to get out of our seats. We have to get out of the comforts of our building. We have to go across the street. We have to go into our community. We have to go into our city. We have to go into our nation. We have to go into our world, and we have to obey this Great Commission. The Great Commission involves going. Now, we like sitting. We like the comfort of sitting in, in, in a building like this where it's heated in the winter, and it's cool in in the summer and we got comfortable pews and we got pretty paint and nice walls and we feel protected and we got locks on doors. We like sitting, but the great commission cannot be fulfilled sitting in the pews of a church. The great commission can only be fulfilled by people who are willing to go. And God is commanding every one of us to be a people who goes I'm thinking back a long time to when I was a 16-year-old uh, teenager, 15, 16-year-old teenager. We moved outside the city of Atlanta to uh, a suburb called Stockbridge, and I was in a new school. I was in the band. I played the trumpet in the band. I was having marching band practice on a Thursday evening, and a man by the name of John Burnham, Mr. Burnham, is well up into his 80s now. His wife, uh, well up into their 80s. He was the music and youth pastor of what became my home church. On that particular Thursday evening when band practice was over, Mr. Latson let us out of band practice. I began making my way out to the parking lot to get in my car and to drive home. And there was somebody standing by my car waiting on me. It was John Burnham. And he said, David, I understand you're new. And I said, yes, I'm new. He said, I want to invite you to our church, and I want to invite you to our youth group. And we have an orchestra. We'd love for you to play the trumpet in our orchestra. Would you consider coming? And and that became the the process by which I ultimately came to know Christ as my Savior. I followed Him in Believer's Baptism. I met my wife, who I'm married to to this day, 43 years later. Uh, I was called to preach. All of that came out of a man who was willing to Go. Now, he could have sat at his house. He could have stayed in his office at the church. And he could have said, you know what? I hope David comes to to church here. I hope David comes to the youth group. I hope David will join the orchestra. I hope somebody will tell him. But he didn't wait on somebody else to tell him. And I am eternally grateful that he didn't wait on somebody else to tell him. He went. He waited. He waited. And he witnessed to me. And he shared the gospel of Jesus with me. And that's what's necessary. We have to be willing to go. We can't just sit and soak. We've got to get up and we've got to serve. We've got to go out where the people are. And we've got to share with them the most important news there is. We've got to go where they are. And that's the directive. That's the directive that God's given to us. And that's not just for the disciples of the first century. That's for every one of us. Because the discipleship aspect was to pass along this truth so that every generation of Christians would keep going. They would keep going because there's new generations that are coming up behind. And we have to keep going to reach the generation generations that are, that are surrounding us. We have to keep going. Did you know that God has commanded you to go? Yes, he commands you to come and gather with believers and sit and learn the scripture and be instructed and be guided and so forth and be encouraged and, and so forth. But he, he commands us when we leave this place to go into the world. That's what he commands us to do. And without the going, there can't be obedience to the great commission. And that's why when we have a mission celebration and we have missionaries that are coming to us, we have more than 90 missionaries, 90 missionary projects with whom we partner. Men and women that we have joined in their lives and we have said, we're going to help you to go. We're going to help you to go. And what's the Bible say about those who go? It says, their feet are beautiful. For whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. How shall they call on him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall he preach without, unless they're sent? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. How can they go if they're not sent? There have to be people who are willing to help them go, have to be willing that are willing to send them to where they need to go. But all of us, whether it's across the street, or whether it's uh, to the community where we live, or the city where we live, or to the nation that we call our home, or whether it's the world that desperately needs the gospel, we have to be willing to go. That's the directive. The second word is the word destination. Where does he tell us to go? He says, go into all the world. I'd have you to circle the word all. It is a very strong Greek word. It's emphatic. He's not suggesting you go into all like just to Huntington or just Huntington and Barbersville or just Huntington, Barbersville and Proctorville. He's saying all like in all. I mean, I want you to go to all the world. And to how many does he say we're supposed to go to? Every creature, to every person on the face of the earth, we're supposed to go to all the world and to every creature, everybody deserves to hear the good news. Everybody needs, deserves to know that, that God loves, that God loves them. You know, um, we have to be willing to go, and we have to be willing to go into all the world and to every single creature. Let me just illustrate to you what I mean. A year ago, almost a year ago, be a year this November a young man tried to make contact with a native tribe off the coast of India. His name was John Chow. You probably saw the reports about him being killed, uh, trying to make contact with this tribal people. A people that had little or any uh, none uh, kind of contact from the outside world. And if you watch the news reports, you know that there were, were a lot of people who just mocked him. And I listened to all of those things, and I couldn't help but think within myself, you know, there's a young man who understood what the Great Commission said. The Great Commission said, go, not just across the street, not just to my community or to my city, and not just to my nation. It said, go into all the world, even to the people that are hard and difficult to reach. But there were people everywhere. They were mocking him. They were, they were making light of him. They were, they were laughing at him. I saved some of the articles that were written about him because I was, I, was, I was incensed at what even Christian people were saying about this young man. I was incensed. and I've cobbled together a few paragraphs out of these articles. These come from two or three different articles, but listen, listen to what they say. John Chow, a 26-year-old American missionary, was killed last month on North Sentinel Island, 700 miles off the coast of mainland India. Chow was part of a community of people who do extreme, sometimes undercover missionary work among the 5 billion people who live within the 1040 window. That is, home to the majority of the world's Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists. The region is also known as the Resistant Belt because many countries there make proselytizing illegal and, in some cases, punishable by death. Oh, so we just stop. We don't go, right? Not hardly. All Nations, a Christian missions agency based in the United States, confirmed that John Allen Chow traveled to North Sentinel Island after years of study and training to evangelize its small indigenous population who remain almost entirely untouched by modern civilization. Many considered, the article says, Chow a fool or worse criticizing him for breaking Indian law and endangering the isolated Sentinelese, who have no immunity to many common diseases, we might bring them an illness. And don't you love Twitter? I have learned to hate social media. Have you? For all the good it can do, it is certainly used for a whole lot of evil. One Twitter user wrote, John Allen Chow is not a martyr, just a dumb American who thought the tribals needed Jesus when the tribals already lived in harmony with God and nature for years without outside interference. And aren't you such a brilliant person? Or another wrote, I'm sorry, but what a deluded idiot. And be honest, some of you felt exactly the same. Because we don't take seriously the Great Commission. Go into how much of the world? All the world. It's emphatic to how many creatures? To every creature. Sometime between Friday, November the 16th, 2018, when Chow wrote his last journal entry, and Saturday, November the 17th, when the fishermen who had brought him to his destination saw his body on the beach, Chow was killed by the people he had sought to reach for Christ. One of the handful of uncontacted tribes remaining, the Sentinelese, have no peaceful contact with outsiders. We don't even know their real name. They're called the Sentinelese because the British named their their land North Sentinel Island. Though many are fascinated by the idea of a Stone Age tribe, Chow's goal was not tribal tourism. He wanted to live with the Sentinelese, share the story of Jesus, and translate the Bible into their language as his journal entries and statements from all nations. That's the missions organization, Child's sending mission organization made clear. What was he doing? He believed God had called him to do his very best to reach a tribal people that were part of the world. but I'm afraid that we feel a little like a lot of those Twitter writers. He's just an idiot. They're already living in harmony with with God and nature. Yeah, it may be true, but they don't know Jesus Christ. And they desperately need to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's so interesting how, how Christianity's changed since 1956. On January the 8th, 1956, there were five men who were in the Amazon River Basin in Ecuador. Those names are names that you probably know if you've been around the church for any length of time. Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Ed McCulley, Nate Saint, and Roger Yudarian. Five men who were committed to making contact with what were called at the time the Aukas because the word means savages. We now know them to be the Wadani people. That's what they called themselves, the Wadani people they took their plane and they flew in and they began dropping things to show goodwill they were shouting messages from the plane uh, so that they could indicate goodwill finally they found a sandbar along this river not uh, along the river and they landed the plane and they got out they set up a temporary encampment they made contact with the wadani people but it wasn't very long that the Wadani people turned on them and speared all five men to death. I guess they were idiots, too. Those five men became the names of hero missionaries. Jim Elliot may be the best known because his wife Elizabeth was a writer, and she wrote books about his life. But I want to encourage you to do something. If you've got Amazon Prime, I want you to go find the movie "The End of the Spear." It's free if you're an Amazon Prime member. It's free. It was, on, it was in the theaters years ago. It's free on Amazon Prime. I want you to watch it. It's the story told by. Uh, by Steve Saint, Nate Saint's son, about what took place out there in the Amazon River Basin. And it shows you them trying to make contact with the Wadani people. It shows them being speared by the Wadani people. It shows them in the compassion and the love that they had for those people they were so desperately trying to reach. I, I would suggest to you that those men weren't idiots. They simply believed what God said. Now, it may not be that God's called you to the Amazon River Basin, but if God has called somebody to the Amazon River Basin, we ought to be willing to help them. Because the Great Commission, the directive is to go. The destination is into all the world, emphatic, all the world, to every creature. Nobody is excluded until everybody has had an opportunity to hear the gospel, the work of the church is not completed. And by the way, it'll never be completed because another generation grows up and you've got to keep reaching them. One generation after another. Amen. And here were these men who were willing to go. And a lot of folks don't, don't understand. Their pictures were in, were in Life magazine. Their story was told in the major magazines of that day you might be surprised about the similarities that existed between Chow who was killed a year ago and th- th- these other five men the most famous of them being Jim Elliot. Elliot and Chow shared more than a desire to reach remote tribes with the gospel. Both were young when they died. Elliot had just turned 28. Chow was about to turn 27. Both men were natives of the Pacific Northwest. Elliot grew up in Portland, Oregon, and Chow just across the Columbia River in Vancouver, Washington. Both loved the outdoors and were exhilarated by risk-taking. Elliot was an avid mountain climber who climbed Mount Hood, Mount Rainier, and a number of the other Cascade Peaks. Chow described climbing down slippery, dry waterfalls in the Cascades, hiking Washington's Table Mountain, and exploring forests around British Columbia's Chilliwack River. Both grew up in mission-soaked environments. Elliot's father encouraged him toward missions from an early age, and he started volunteering for uh, short-term missions trips in high school. He read, and among other missionary stories, the journals of David Brainerd, the biographies of Hudson Taylor and David Livingston, and the writings of Amy Carmichael. He was heavily involved with foreign missions fellowship while attending Wheaton College. Chow. Chow had apparently been going on short-term missions trips since high school as well, and had attended a Christian university which emphasized foreign missions. He cited David Livingston and Bruce Olson as inspirations and was reading a book about the wives of Adoniram Judson, who was a missionary who had three wives that died shortly before his death. Did you know there were those similarities? That idiot? Did you know he had the similarities with... Jim Elliott, who was the missionary hero. You see, somewhere along the way, we've sort of drifted in in our Christianity to believe that, you know, we don't have to worry about people on the other side of the planet and people who are isolated off to themselves and and those that feel called to go to those kind of circumstances in those kind of situations. We're more concerned about them picking up some kind of modern disease than we are them dying and going to hell. the directive is to go. The destination is into all the world and every creature. Why? Because all are transgressors. There isn't anybody born in the world who isn't a sinner. We all come short of the glory of God. They have to go because all are loved by God. There isn't anybody on this planet that God doesn't love. We have to go because all can be saved. Hey, look, Jesus has done everything there is to bring salvation. He left the task of taking that message to the ends of the earth, to you and to me. If there is a failure, it is not God. It's us. All can be saved. And by the way, if you think those men are idiots, shouldn't break the laws of the land, let me ask you a question. What about those who are smuggling Bibles into places where you can't have a Bible? Are they idiots too? And how about those that are living as tent makers? They're working a regular job in a foreign country, but their real purpose for being there is to win people to Jesus Christ. Are they idiots too? You get my point, don't you? By the way, I don't think you feel like that. I'm speaking to a broader audience than just our church. I'm telling you that when the Scripture says in the Great Commission, we're to go, He means it. We're not supposed to sit and soak for the rest of our lives. We're supposed to get up and go serve. That means going. And we're supposed to go into all the world. For many of us, probably for most of us, that's going across the street or in our own community or in our own neighborhoods or in our own city. But for some, that means going to the other side of the earth. the third word, it's the word duty. The directive is go, the destination is all the world and every creature, that is if we take it seriously. And the duty is to preach the gospel. There's your verb that has the imperative to it, you preach the gospel. You lift up your voice and you declare the gospel of Jesus Christ and you call people to the acceptance of that gospel. And aren't we thankful for the gospel? The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel is that Jesus came from heaven, took upon himself the form of sinful man and died in mankind's place and paid the penalty of mankind's sin, was buried and rose again and lives today so that he could save any and all who will come to him. He will take what he paid for on that cross and credit it to anybody's sin debt and cancel it. That's the gospel. That's good news. Have you looked out lately? How many empty eyes there are? How many people who don't know what life really means? They don't understand what their purpose is. They have nothing to live for beyond what they're doing at this moment because they don't know the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel, not the preacher, Not the one delivering that message. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. It's the gospel that set those two alcoholics free and that woman who ran the bar. It's the gospel. We preach the gospel. We don't preach the preacher. We don't preach the people. We don't preach the deacons. We don't preach the church. We don't preach the denomination. We preach the gospel. It is the gospel that desperately needs to be preached. It needs to be preached faithfully. we don't trim it in any way. We preach it just exactly as it is. It'll cause offense to some people. They'll stumble over the gospel. But we preach the gospel just as it is faithfully. We preach it compassionately, recognizing that our desire is to draw people to Jesus, not to drive them away from Jesus. And we preach it powerfully. It isn't something we can do in our own ability or our own strength. It is something that can only be done with the help and the aid and the power of the Spirit of God who indwells us. I know you know this, and let me say it to you again. You don't save anybody. Jesus is the one who saves, but we are the ones who carry the message to tell them that Jesus saves. And we have to carry that message with His help and with His enabling and with His power. The duty is to preach the gospel. The directive is to go. The destination is all the world and every creature. The duty is to preach the gospel. The decision, the decision that people have to make, verse 16, he who, what's the next word? Believes. Please hear this. Nobody is saved by any work that you do whatsoever of any kind, period, you were saved by the work of Jesus Christ the moment you believe that Jesus did it for you. Jesus did it for you. Some people front, what I call front load the gospel. You got to do this, 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 and this, then believe. Then there's people who back load the gospel, what I call back loading the gospel. Well, you got to believe, but then you got to do this, this, and this, and this, or you're not saved. That isn't the message we bring. The message we bring is that when you know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you, you must believe that Jesus has died for your sins, was buried and rose again. Instantaneously, you're made a child of the living God. Now you get up every day as a child of the living God and you make a decision. I'm going to follow Jesus today. And the next day, I'm going to follow Jesus today. And the next day, I'm going to follow Jesus today. And you go on into discipleship. You go on into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. But salvation comes to the one who believes. I'm going to help you here for a moment. Would you like that? Some of you, some of you are still wondering, am I really saved or not? Because you look at some of the things you do, and you think to yourself, that's not really what a Christian should do. And I'm thankful you feel that way. That's called conviction. Amen. That means I need to get some things right. But if you've believed on Jesus, that doesn't change the fact that you're His child. Amen. Listen to John chapter 6, verse 47. Matter of fact, I want you to turn to that passage with me. Will you do that for a moment? John chapter 6, verse 47. I'm going to help you with your salvation. With the assurance of your salvation. I'm going to help you. John chapter 6, verse 47. By the way, this is one verse of dozens we could turn to. I'm going to give you this one. Jesus is speaking in John chapter 6. Notice verse 47. Most assuredly, Jesus said, I say to you, he who believes in me has, present tense, right now, what? Everlasting life. Don't stop. Don't stop. Don't stop. It ends with a punctuation mark. It is not a question at the end of the the sentence. It is not an ellipsis at the end of the sentence as if something else is going to come afterwards. It is a what? It's a period. Period. Full stop. Full stop. Nothing else comes after it. If you believe in Jesus, I don't mean just know who He is. I'm talking about Jesus. He died for my sins, was buried, and rose again. I believe that Jesus did that for me. When you believe in Jesus, you have present tense, everlasting life, period. Nothing added to it. You rest in it. You say, thank God for it. And then you say, oh Lord, I want to live for you. I don't want to live for you to keep myself saved. I want to live for you because I'm saved. The decision is to believe. Isn't that good news? Here's here's the thing. We're not bringing Americanism to people around the world. There's a lot of things about American culture I hope we don't take around the world. Right? We're not bringing American culture. We're bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're calling people to believe. Not the American way. Not the Baptist way. Not the denominational way. We're calling them to believe on Jesus. Believe on Jesus, and that's the decision that you must make. Can I tell you today, if you're listening to my voice, and you have never trusted Christ, you have never believed on Jesus, that he is the only hope for your eternal soul, the only way of forgiveness. If you haven't believed that, today is the day, right where you're seated, right now, right this moment. You say, I don't have to wait for an invitation. You don't have to wait for an invitation. It may be too late by the invitation. You believe on Jesus now. The decision. That brings me to one last word. That's the word deliverance. The directive is go. The destination is all the world and every creature. The duty is preach the gospel. The decision is to believe. The deliverance is saved from condemnation. I want you to go back with me. Go back with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 16, verse 16. He who believes and is baptized, what? Will be, what's the word? Saved. What will I be saved from? He who does not believe will be, what's the word? Condemned. What are you saved from? You're saved from the condemnation. Do you realize that as a sinner, outside of Jesus Christ, having not believed on Jesus, that condemnation is already yours? It's already on you. You are already deserving. But you believe on Jesus and He saves you. You say, what does that mean? That means I was playing football the other night and I got an extra wind of breath and I was able to make the touchdown. And I saved the game. That is not what it's talking about. You say, well, I, I, was, I was in the company and, and I was moving up the ladder in the company and I was really doing great things and making big bucks for the company and, and, and I came up with an idea because the company was going to phase out something related to our company and I was going to lose my job and I saved the company with my idea. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about you and me and Everybody in this world who's born into this world is a transgressor. We are all under the condemnation of our own sins. And Jesus comes and He saves us from under that condemnation. And He clothes us in His own righteousness. And I stand before God, not in the works that I've done, but in the work that Jesus has done for me. Amen. Saved from condemnation. I'm glad to be able to stand before you. I'm not ashamed of the word. You know, we're we're ashamed of words anymore. I'm not ashamed of the word. I'm saved. Yeah. You don't understand what that means. That's because you haven't been reading your Bible. You haven't been coming to church. I don't expect people outside the church to not know what it means. I expect people who are sitting in the pews week after week to know what it means. I'm saved. And I'm saved from the condemnation of my own sins what I rightfully deserve. You understand that there's a day coming. It's called the great white throne judgment. When every man, woman, boy, and girl who has rejected Jesus Christ will stand before God and he will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. You see, I'm not so sure anymore. We've become so sophisticated in our, our modern churches that I'm not so sure that a lot of Christians even believe in hell anymore or the lake of fire. Hell, by the way, is the temporary holding place of the the dead, the unbelieving dead. The lake of fire is the eternal place of of the unbelieving dead. I'm not sure we even believe it like we say we believe it. We don't ever seem to cry over anybody's soul. We, We say to our children, Oh, listen, listen, we want you to get a great education and we want you to have a great job. We want you to be pulling down the G's. We want you to make sure that you rise in the company we never ask our children do you think god might want to use you in his service somewhere you think god might call you to be a missionary somewhere oh no we'd never do that oh no i don't want to let go of my kids i love my kids too much people who say those kind of things don't understand then what it means to be going to hell If you understood and and grasped what it meant to be under the condemnation of God going to be turned into the, 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 the lake of fire for all of eternity where you have to pay the penalty of your sins and you can never pay it in full, you'd understand that your children have a higher purpose than just pulling down some G's. Your children have a purpose of being used as a vessel of God. It may not be that He'll call them to a foreign mission field, but it's that He'll call them to to their neighbor across the street or in their own community or to the people that they've grown up with. God will call them to touch their hearts and their lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ because they're all under condemnation. It was Jim Elliott who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You know the idiot that died on January the 8th, 1956 with four other men on that sandbar in the Amazon basin? Or that John Chow who was the idiot? You remember him? Jim Elliott said, it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott as a young man in his late 20s speared by the Wadani people, hey, you know what happens in the story? The wives stay. They forgive them. They bring the gospel to them. And while not all the Wadani people came to know Jesus, many of them did. And when you watch the movie, The End of the Spear, when the credits start rolling by, And you know in the movie theater, when you get up, the credits are all, you know that's what's playing, that's all that's left. Don't miss, wait for the credits to roll on by and watch the live scenes of the man who speared his own father, Steve Saint's own father, who came to faith in Jesus Christ, who now is considered by Steve Saint's children to be the grandfather to his children. Just just wait long enough and see that man. The one who speared Steve Saint's father. He came to faith in the Lord Jesus, and many others of the the Wadani people did. And now there's a church there, and there's Christians there, and the gospel is continuing to grow and to go forth in that area because one man was willing, or five men, I should say, was willing to give his life. And maybe that's what will happen with John Chow. Can I say something to our young people? If God's calling you, say yes. Don't say no. Don't say no. And Moms and dads, if God's calling your children, don't stand in the way. You encourage them. I would rather my children die in the will of God than to live outside the will of God. I'd rather them die knowing that they were serving Jesus Christ and bringing glory to his name and the gospel to the ends of the earth than I had to have them alive, outside of the will of God, living for their own selfish selves. I don't want any of my children to die. I don't want any of my children to die. But I'd rather them die in the will of God than live outside of his will. I'd rather them know the purpose of God for their lives and fulfill it. I'll close with this story. My wife reminded me of it after the first service. When we came here 36 years ago, I had been a youth pastor for almost five years. I was going to school, preparing for the ministry, working as a youth pastor. And there was a young man that was in our group. I'll not tell you his whole name. His name was, first name was Jim. God got a hold of Jim's heart. I mean, God did an incredible work in Jim's life. Jim came to a, a school gathering. They let him come to a school gathering, and he preached the gospel. They had revival. They had so many kids coming forward to get saved. They had to extend that session. Jim's about, about this. he's shorter than I am. Red-headed guy. Mary and I moved here. I don't know how many months it was after we got here. I got a letter from from Jim. And Jim thanked me and Mary for the impact that we'd had in their lives. And they loved us. And and I'll never forget, I've got the letter. He says, I'm going to Bible college and training for the ministry so that I can come and work with you in Huntington. His parents didn't like it. They didn't want him to go to Bible college. They had another plan for their son. They convinced Jim to do something other than what God wanted him to do. One day, riding on 138 Highway in Stockbridge, Georgia, an 18-wheeler crossed the center line and hit his car head on, and Jim was dead instantaneously. Who's going to go? And if you don't go, who are we going to send? Who are we going to send? Who's going to go to the Sentinelese? Who's going to go to the Wadani's? Who's going to go to South America? Who's going to go to Africa? Who's going to go to Canada or Mexico? Who's going to go across the United States? Who's going to go from Georgia to West Virginia? Who's going to go? There is no higher calling than for God to call you to go. Now look, God's calling every one of us to go across the street, into our community, to our city. God's calling some of you to go way beyond there. Don't say no. Please don't say no. And parents, whatever you do, don't... Don't don't hinder or hamper your children. Encourage them if God's calling them.